0: More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Law. Here's a look at some of the top stories this week. The United Auto Workers' strike expands. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton may have been acquitted on impeachment charges, but he's now facing a trial for securities fraud. Should schools tell parents their children are using new pronouns? And the class action lawsuits start over ineffective decongestants. It's exciting but very scary because the unknown. You don't know when you're going to get that full paycheck again. You don't know when you're going to get back in there to work again. Tonya Sullivan is a third-generation auto worker walking the picket line as the United Auto Workers union expanded its target strikes against the Big Three carmakers. More than 5,000 workers walked out of 38 General Motors and Stellantis facilities on Friday, joining the 13,000 auto workers who walked off the job last week. Union President Sean Fain announced the stepped-up pressure, pointing once again to CEO pay raises and profits the three companies have raked in in recent years.
3: Across the country, people are going to know that the UAW is ready to stand up for our communities and ready to stand up against corporate greed.
0: Ford was spared additional strikes because the company has met some of the union's demands during negotiations over the past week. Joining me is labor law expert Michael Duff, a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. Let's talk about the way Sean Fein has framed these negotiations as a broader struggle. He said it's the battle of the working class against the rich, the haves versus the have-nots, the billionaire class against everyone else. So
3: I come from a blue-collar background in a prior life. I was a blue-collar worker in the airline industry. I didn't go to law school until my 30s. I was a teamster shop steward for a number of years, and that rhetoric resonates with me as somebody from that class and somebody who has gone through, on a personal level, labor struggle. To be honest, we have to look at that and say, well, there's a generation of people, people of roughly my age or a little bit younger, who would be very put off by that language. That would seem extremely corrosive not tending to uh, lead to agreements and so forth. Now, we have younger people coming up through the ranks of organized labor. And the sort of precariousness that a lot of them are facing, I think, makes the rhetoric almost suddenly appropriate, almost unbelievably to those of us who have been involved studying the labor movement for the last few decades. So what I think of it is that it matches the enormity of some of the structural changes that we see going on in the economy for workers.
0: What about this so-called stand-up strike targeting work stoppages at plants?
3: Well, I think to the outside observer, a lot of this sounds pretty esoteric and strange, but actually, from a legal perspective, it makes because unions strike at their peril. And the reason they strike at their peril is that if employees are striking over economic subjects of bargaining, that's the phrase of art. So you're not paying me enough. I need more contribution to health care from you, Mr. or Ms. Employer. If they are economic subjects that are sort of fomenting the conflict between the union and the employer, employees go on strike. They can be permanently replaced. And that's sort of the animating principle behind a lot of what's going on here. What permanent replacement means is that you go out on strike over an economic subject. You can't be fired, but we have to be able to attract people to do the job that you're no longer doing because you're on strike. And we can't very well go to this prospective employee that we want to take your place and say, well, we're only going to temporarily hire you. Why? Because we're not going to get a lot of people that are going to like that deal. So what we say to the replacement worker is you come in and you can hold the job as long as you want. And so as a matter of law, the employer is not required to fire that person at the end of the strike. And so if you're the average worker, you go out on strike and you're permanently replaced. It's kind of a lawyer's distinction the distinction between being fired and being permanently replaced, if it means no employment, then you're out of work either way, right? There's no money coming in. You don't have food on the table. Once you understand that this is the background rule, you begin to understand why unions are very leery and have become more leery over the decades of just going out on strike. Because if you go out on strike and the job is the kind of job that somebody coming in off the street could do. And then what's going to happen is the employer is simply going to replace all or most of the bargaining unit, and it's a very difficult situation for unions.
0: Thousands of workers have been laid off. All three of the automakers have laid off workers, and they say it's because of internal supply chain issues, a lack of parts needed for certain assembly workers to do their jobs. Why are they citing that? Do they need a reason for laying off workers during a strike?
3: That's a very good question. So when you lay off workers because you don't have enough materials to continue production, arguably, that's not even a lockout, right? You're not laying the workers off, at least on the surface. You're not laying them off to pressure the union to accept a bargaining position that you have. You're laying workers off because you can't continue production. In the old days, we used to talk about lockouts, and just to give you a sense of how far back this line of law goes, it used to be that we would say that defensive lockouts were lawful, but offensive lockouts were unlawful. The distinction was a defensive lockout is you had a good business reason for doing what you were doing, right? There was no way that you were doing it to pressure the union. You had a business justification for locking employees out. I think the strategy of the automakers here is to position themselves in such a way that it's much harder to say that they're doing what they're doing for discriminatory reasons. Probably they're allowed to do it anyhow. They're probably allowed to do it to pressure the union to accept their bargaining position. They arguably could do that, but here, they actually have a business justification, which is we can't make cars if we don't have parts.
0: It sounds like management has all the cards. What cards does the union hold?
3: Well, the sort of gamesmanship, that's what it is. It's a high stakes game. But this idea of the stand-up strike is that by moving around, all right, so, you know, a boxer doesn't stand in one place and allow himself to be punched. You sort of move around. So you're not on strike at a number of facilities, but you are at one key facility, right? And so what you're doing is you're setting up a situation where the employer could permanently replace in that particular location or lock out, but then you have other facilities where nothing's going on. It's a variant of something that labor insiders call a whipsaw strike. This actually goes back a number of decades, right? And typically it was a union bargaining with different employers in what was called a multi-employer bargaining unit. But the idea was very similar, that what you did was, as the employer, you see that the union is striking an employer, say, over there. So what you do is you lock out your employees to prevent the union from being able to strike according to its own timetable. And the idea is, that that pressures the union in unforeseen ways. But what the union can do is to engage in work stoppages in unpredictable ways. It will run into various legal doctrines that have been designed over the decades to frustrate that kind of maneuver. But I do think that that's the union's best opportunity to wind up with a positive outcome here.
0: Sean Fain expanded the strike on Friday. Is he using a pretty aggressive strategy? Well, it is
3: aggressive. And, you know, what this reminds me of, you know, at the end of World War II, aggressive union activity was obviously curtailed during the war. And there was a lot of pent-up labor activity that all of a sudden was released at the conclusion of the war. And you had a lot of strikes occur, and that became the impetus for creation of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is a part. Of the National Labor Relations Act as it's been amended. And I almost feel like, you know, as a result of just everything that's been going on with respect to the gig economy and the precariousness of employment, coupled with the pandemic and some of the labor conflicts that emerged because of the pandemic, a lot of it centered on healthcare and perceived dangerous workplaces, all of that kind of culminates over this summer. You have a situation where workers maybe have had enough they're willing to take risk. And I think Sean Fain is is tapping into that. He realizes almost viscerally that he has a rank-and-file employee group that's ready to hear that message. If that message had been attempted in other eras, it might not have been successful. But I think he is mirroring some of the emotions that are percolating up from the rank and file. And of course, he is a rank and file member. He has deep roots in the auto union itself.
0: Well, it seems to be working as far as Ford is concerned. Let's see what happens next week. Thanks so much, Michael. That's Professor Michael Duff of the St. Louis University School of Law. Coming up next, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was acquitted at his impeachment trial but now he's facing a trial on felony securities fraud charges and is in danger of losing his license to
1: practice law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. All rise, the court of impeachment of the Texas Senate is now in session.
0: Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's eight-year tenure as the state's top law enforcement officer has been marked by public scandals and criminal charges. The toughest test of his political resilience came when he was impeached by fellow Republicans in the House over allegations including bribery and corruption. Paxton denied any wrongdoing, and said the impeachment was a political sham orchestrated by his opponents. And after a 10-day trial in the Republican-led state senate.
3: There being 14 yeas, 16 nays, a finding of acquittal is entered as to Article 1.
0: And that was the vote on all 16 charges. A resounding acquittal that puts back into office an attorney general who's facing trial on felony securities fraud charges remains under a separate FBI investigation and could be disbarred in an ethics case brought by the Texas State Bar. Despite all those legal challenges, in his first post-trial interviews, a newly emboldened Paxton took aim at a number of high-profile fellow Republicans he believes betrayed him, including Texas Senator John Cornyn. Even telling Tucker Carlson, he's not ruling out a run for Cornyn's seat.
2: You know what? I don't. I think he's never really had competition. I, Why
0: don't you run against
2: him? Hey, look, everything's on the table for me.
0: Joining me is Madeline Meckleberg, Bloomberg Texas legal reporter. Madeline, start by telling us about the articles of impeachment. Broadly, what was he accused of? So
4: Ken Paxton was impeached by the Republican-dominated House in May of this year on 20 charges that spanned the various allegations raised since he took office as attorney general in 2015. They talked specifically about Allegations raised by top staffers in the attorney general's office who reported Paxton to the FBI for alleged bribery. They all really center on Paxton's relationship with a friend and political donor named Nate Paul, who's a real estate developer in Austin. And he's been accused of using his office to aid Paul both in terms of turning over potentially confidential law enforcement investigation information to Paul, who was under an FBI probe at the time, and issuing opinions that would favor Paul in some of his proceedings. And so there's 20 different articles that go into different facets, but this relationship is really what's at the heart of them.
0: And we should note that Nate Paul has been federally indicted on charges of making false statements to financial institutions. Going back to the trial, what evidence stood out to you?
4: I think something that really stood out was consistent testimony from top employees in his office who said they told him time and time again that they were concerned about his actions. We heard from people who said that they had private conversations with him, who called meetings with him to tell him that they were concerned that what he was doing was stepping over the line. Something that's really key in the case here that gets into this bribery allegation is his alleged extramarital affair. One of the accusations is that Nate Paul hired the woman with whom he was allegedly having an affair and kept her on payroll. And in turn, Paxton was performing these acts in his office to benefit Paul. We heard from his former chief of staff in the office who talked about how this relationship affected the staff and how people were uncomfortable fielding phone calls from Paxton's wife and having to make certain accommodations for him and this relationship. I think that was a really compelling piece of testimony that we heard.
0: Paxton didn't testify in his own defense. He only made appearances at the trial at the beginning and the very end. What was his defense?
4: The goal for his defense was clear here, and that was to cast this as a mutiny by some staffers in his office who wanted to take over as attorney general, potentially. They said this is a politically targeted attack at Ken Paxton. They say none of the actions he took violated the law. All of the things were things that he was allowed to do within his power as attorney general.
0: So Paxton is back in office as the state's top law enforcement officer, but he's facing other legal problems.
4: That's right. He's been reinstated as attorney general I think there's a lot of eyes now on what happens next. How do you go back to that office after going through this like really public ordeal where a lot of details were shared about your alleged conduct? And then he's got other legal battles regarding his conduct that he still has to fight. Like I mentioned, he's been under indictment since 2015 for securities fraud in a case that is yet to go to trial. It's been delayed significantly by these different pretrial squabbles. And he's also tied up in uh, some disciplinary proceedings involving the State Bar of Texas, who accused him of professional misconduct for his efforts to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. And there's an ongoing federal probe into his conduct that was prompted by the whistleblowers who are behind some of these impeachment claims. So we could still see charges from that. So while this was a significant step, it's not the final word on Paxton's legal saga.
0: Those two state securities fraud charges. He was indicted on those just months after he took office in 2015. And it's always surprised me that that hasn't gone to trial yet. How has he managed to avoid trial for eight years? That's a great question.
4: There's been quite a few skirmishes ahead of this trial date. I think a key one was venue where the case should be tried, either in Houston or in his home county of Collin County. There have been objections raised to the prosecutor bringing the case. And all of these disputes have gone through a full appeals process on their own going up to the the top state appeals court in Texas. And they've caused significant delays. I think, finally, the state appeals court said that the case can proceed in Harris County. There was a date here in state for Paxton in the case just before the impeachment proceedings began. And the judge said once
0: those proceedings wrap, she's ready to get this case moving again in Harris County. And as you said, there is an investigation by the FBI and the Justice Department's public integrity section. Is that on the same allegations that were testified to in the impeachment trial?
4: That's right. So these top employees in Paxton's office, who we call the whistleblowers, they reported Paxton's conduct to the FBI as it relates to advancing causes on behalf of his friend and political donor, Nate Paul. And the FBI and the DOJ, they've been investigating. We haven't seen the result of that investigation up to this point, but those cases are ongoing.
0: And just to be clear, he was reelected last year to a third term despite all these criminal and ethical allegations. That's exactly
4: right, and that was a point that we heard from Paxton's defense counsel throughout the proceedings. They said Texas voters knew about these allegations and they didn't care. They elected him anyway, and so why should the state senate overturn that? Why should they overturn the will of the voters?
0: And Paxton seems newly emboldened by his acquittal. Some political experts think that he could gain prominence on the national stage. I think that's
4: totally fair. I mean, from the beginning, Paxton's reputation has been built on being a conservative agitator who views the Biden administration over everything that they do. And he's worked to align himself with former President Donald Trump, who we saw go through a similar thing during his presidency, being acquitted in impeachment cases and only serving to boost his reputation. And I think that that's exactly what we're going to see happen here with Paxton, who's going to certainly be emboldened by this outcome I think we're still waiting kind of with bated breath to see what his first moves are going to be now that he's been reinstated to the office. But I think it's certainly fair to say that this has only helped to bolster his reputation within his own party.
0: A lot more to come in the legal sagas of Ken Paxton. And I know you'll be following that for us, Madeline. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg, Texas legal reporter Madeline Meckleberg. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, A new legal battle is emerging over whether schools should tell parents that their children are using new preferred pronouns. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
5: When children say they identify as something other than their sex at school, do they become mere creatures of the state? Or do their fit parents still have the fundamental right to make decisions regarding their care?
0: The emerging legal battle over pronoun protocol in public schools has nothing to do with grammar and everything to do with gender identity. Some parents are suing schools that keep their children's use of new pronouns secret, claiming it's a violation of their constitutional right to direct the upbringing of their children. The Ludlow, Massachusetts School Committee is being sued over a teacher's failure to notify parents that their 11-year-old began using different preferred pronouns. A federal judge dismissed the parents' complaint, but the First Circuit Court of Appeals could revive it, and at oral arguments, the judges seem to be wrestling with the issues. Here are judges Julie Reichelman and Kermit Lipes. I think gender identity is clearly very important to everyone, and there are many things that happen in school every
4: day that would qualify as less important than that. So do you really see no limiting principle be- between something like the gender identity of your child and you know who your child may have played with during recess that day? Are you really saying there's no difference there?
3: But you seem to be asserting, bottom line, that the rights of the student to preclude disclosure of this request to use pronouns trumps the right of the parents to know what's going on with respect to the child's gender identity. That, that bottom line, you are asserting that, aren't you?
0: Joining me is Audrey Anderson, head of the higher education practice at Bass Berry and Sims. Audrey, explain where the parents are suing here.
5: The school where their children, middle schoolers, attended have a policy that's not an unusual policy that says if the students come to personnel in the school and say that they want to change their name, change their pronoun to the opposite gender that they were born into, the school will work with them to do that. And also, will keep that information from the student's parents if the students ask for it to be kept from their parents. So the parents here were aware that one of their children was experiencing some questions about their gender and actually reached out to the school proactively to say, we don't want you to talk to our child about this. And the school, nevertheless, behind the parents' backs, talked to the child, started calling the child by a different name, used different pronouns, and the parents, understandably, were very upset about this.
0: What surprises me about this is that at that age, if your kid seems aggressive, gets into a fight with someone, the teachers are on the phone or calling you in, and yet they don't want to tell them about this very important aspect of their kid's life. The countervailing
5: policy decision here, and I think one reason why the parents are going to have a particularly hard time winning this case, is that there's a Massachusetts law that requires schools to not discriminate against students because of their gender identity. And so this school has decided that in order to carry out that duty, they need to keep that information about the student private if the student asks for it to be private. So the school district here says, well, we have this state law that says we are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of gender identity. And there are some students for which it won't be safe for them at home if their parents know that they are going by a different gender identity. It may become psychologically unsafe for them at home. So that's the countervailing thing and why this is different in the school's mind from your child got in a fight or your child threw up at school or all the other things that happen to kids at school that the
0: school does tell parents about. Did the school just call the child by preferred pronouns, or did the school do more than that? They also had
5: somebody at the school meet with the child regularly to talk to them about how they were feeling and be a resource person for them. And the parents here alleged that in that way, they were actually giving mental health treatment to their child without the parent's consent. Now, the district court found that they hadn't adequately alleged facts to support a conclusion that the child was receiving mental health treatment. So the district court kind of threw that out based on the factual
0: allegation. The district court used a standard... A very tough standard shocking the conscience. Tell us what that standard is and is it appropriate in this case, is it the correct standard in this case?
5: Well yes, the parents here are alleging that their substantive due process rights were violated. And the court I think used the right standards to figure that out. You know, the parents in the Court of Appeals have said that the district court kind of made that standard extra tough, but the cases I've looked at seem to require that the facts alleged really have to shock the conscience. And they're usually looking for something where the state actor has intentionally inflicted harm on the person who is suing. So, you know, one of the cases I saw where there actually was substantive due process adequately alleged was where a school coach had intentionally used a hard object to hit a student in the face. That shocked the conscience. But there's lots of things where students are hurt, where it might be upsetting, but it doesn't reach that shock the conscience standard. And substantive due process is a very tricky legal standard that lots of judges think should be circumscribe that there should be very few things that we find are protected by substantive due process. So what's established is the right to marry, the right to have children. So they want to keep the range of things that are within substantive due process really small. Now these parents say that, well, what's within substantive due process is the right to raise your children as you see fit. The thing they run into there is that there are Supreme Court cases that support that, but what they support is the right to raise your children as you see fit in a private school setting. So to me, those cases only say that these parents have a right to send their children to a school that would not have a policy like this. I think it's much harder to say that within the public schools, they get to have a right to say what the policy is on something like this. Here's my caveat. I'm surprised that they haven't raised a religious argument. I think that they'd have a stronger argument if they were also raising some kind of a free exercise argument, that our religion also supports the idea that you are the gender that you're born into. And so for you to be teaching our child something other than that and supporting them transitioning when we've told you not to violate our religious rights. But they haven't argued that in this case.
0: So this First Circuit decision will be the highest court ruling on the merits of this argument. There's a case before the Eleventh Circuit, which is very conservative, so there might end up being some kind of split in the circuits.
5: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that this is an issue that some conservative court will find that at least a complaint can go forward. And then the question will be whether the Supreme Court gets interested enough at that point or whether they want a case with a little bit more factual development, something that goes to a summary judgment motion, at least, or maybe even a trial before they decide to weigh in on this. You know, when the Supreme Court, if when the Supreme Court wades into this, I think that some of the justices will have a hard time because the conservative side of the Supreme Court wants very much to have a very, very narrow set of circumstances where substantive due process protects rights. And Justice Thomas doesn't think that there is such a thing as substantive due process. On the other hand, I would believe them to be very concerned about these kind of school policies, so how they will thread that needle I think, will be very interesting.
0: Well, certainly this case is being watched nationally. There were more than 100 amicus briefs filed, including from 19 states that supported the parents' position and 15 states that supported the school's position. So we'll see how the First Circuit rules. Thanks so much, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson, head of the higher education practice at Bass, Berry & Sims. Coming up next, the lawsuits start over ineffective decongestants. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: We're approaching cold and flu season, and advisors to the Food and Drug Administration say the key drug in the leading over-the-counter decongestants used by millions of Americans is no better than a placebo. Allergists like Dr. Pervy Parikh say consumers should read the labels of cold medications. This ingredient, phenylephrine, is in so many different cold medicines. That's why it is important to kind of uh, educate yourself on what to look for and, and just avoid that ingredient. It was predictable that shortly after the FDA's announcement, class action lawsuits were filed against pharmaceutical companies and retailers on behalf of consumers. Joining me is healthcare attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson-Hardiman. Class action lawsuits were filed within days of the FDA's announcement.
2: I mean, it's almost reflective, right? There are plaintiff law firms around the country that are basically built to take on harm related to different drugs. And so as soon as the FDA said this drug was ineffective, it's not a surprise that we saw the first class action filed down in Florida the real question is, other than the harm to people's wallets from spending you know, $1.75 billion on this drug, what actual harm, you know, whether there were any side effects that actually hurt anybody from phenylephrine? There are a lot of reports of like minor problems like swelling or skin rashes and itching, but I'm not aware of any severe harm, and it's not clear what kind of damages there are going to be beyond just the fact that these companies were selling an ineffective drug.
0: Some of the, the complaints charged that the defendants violated consumer protection statutes and alleged a breach of implied warranty of merchantability, and they committed fraud. But if the FDA approved this, what were the manufacturers supposed to do, Say no, the FDA is wrong?
2: You know, there's been a lot of industry studies going on. So we know that, for example, competitors of some of the FNLF products, like the folks at Sharing Plow, who are making Claritin, were doing a lot of research to show that and arguing that these drugs were ineffective. It's an interesting question whether internally, whether the manufacturers were doing their own research and had reason to know that these drugs were not effective and whether they turned a blind eye to it. I think it's an interesting question, and hopefully we'll learn about some of the internal process within the pharmaceuticals and how much they were aware of this and taking it seriously and concerned about it. But, you know, I think that still remains ahead of us.
0: You mentioned harm to consumers and that there's probably very little of that. So it would be limited to economic damages, right?
2: I think what's likely to happen, I mean, I don't mean to sound cynical, but when this case gets prosecuted, what's likely to happen is that the lawyers who brought these cases will have a multimillion dollar payday in attorney's fees. And there'll be coupons, you know, for people who can prove that they bought the drug but those coupons will be for insignificant <laughs> amounts. The big winners in this class action are likely to be the lawyers who get tens of millions of dollars for filing it.
0: As an example, Johnson and Johnson's consumer unit settled claims alleging aerosol products contained benzene for 1.75 million dollars plus 2.5 million in attorneys' fees. So more in attorneys' fees than in the settlement for consumers.
2: Yeah. So a lot of people, including me, think it it is a defect in our class action system that, you know, the plaintiff class action lawyers are motivated to bring cases that really don't do much to advance the public interest, but do produce profitable work for them. Kind of a sort of bug in our class action uh, system that anytime there's a drug, even if the harm to the public is really minuscule, the plaintiff class action lawyers have a big opportunity.
0: Are those kinds of suits mostly settled? Do any of them ever go to trial?
2: This is certainly not a case that's going to trial. You know, if there were big damages and significant amounts that would be, you know, at risk, like if the harm caused by by phenylephrine was so significant, then there would be something to fight over and and a lot at stake. But, you know, the money that the drug companies are likely to pay for this is going to be something like a rounding error for them. This is not going to be one of those multi-billion dollar settlements. It's likely that the plaintiff's class action lawyers will kind of have a get in quick, you know, reach the settlement, and the drug companies will be offered numbers that will motivate them to do so. I I think it's a pretty safe bet that we're never going to see a trial on the marketing of fnl
0: Thanks, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.